to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. All right, we're going to get in the Word, but before we do that, we're going to do the same thing we did a couple weeks ago. We're going to pray. We're going to have a minute of silence here, maybe not a full minute, but I want you guys to pray. First of all, pray that God will speak to you individually. Pray that God will speak to the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, or those watching online. Um, Also pray for those that may not have a relationship with the Lord, that God would um, speak to them and draw them into his presence, into his kingdom. And then fourth, pray for me, that God would speak to me, through me as well, and that we would truly hear from him, not my words. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the freedom we have to be here today, and we thank you for the freedom in Christ we have. Lord, would you stir within us that passion? Would you open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to hear from you? Lord, would you corporately speak to us as well as a church, that we would be unified? Lord, would you draw those who don't know you into relationship with you? Encourage them, strengthen them. Use us, Lord, if you need be. But Holy Spirit, draw them in. And Lord, I pray that you would also speak to me, bring direction, correction, whatever needs to happen in my life. But Lord, let your word be heard today, not mine. Let it be your word that penetrates hearts and minds. And let us stand strong in that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, one announcement that I didn't do, but I don't know if I have to. Um, fifth Sundays we do, we call Family Sunday, and the kids come in the sanctuary. I know none of you heard the kids, but just in case you didn't, kids are with us. Extend some grace, extend some love, and help them out if you can. And uh, we do that every kind of every quarter, and it gives our children's workers a chance to take a break for a minute. And uh, so the rest of us, just extend some grace. It's all good. Amen. I love the kids. We love having them. All right. The Church of Philadelphia was a wonderful, faithful church. However, believers there were being persecuted by the Jewish brethren, and those Jewish brethren were convinced that they, not the Christians, would inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David. In fact, in AD 90, the Council of Jamnia uh, expelled, the, the Jews expelled the Christians, told them they couldn't even come to the synagogue. So that persecution was heavy and forced and pointed. Jesus assured them, though, that the door to salvation, he was the one that opened that door of salvation for them as well. Nobody, no man could shut it. The same is true for us. Salvation is open for us. No man can shut it. Another thing as we're reading this book of Revelation is that we need to be cognizant of, of, of what the purpose of the book is and not to lose track of what it's about. You know, we talk about the book of Revelation, we talk about end times, and everybody loses their mind, and we go conspiracy theory, and we listen to every little 
strange thing that's happening and we go, oh, that's it, that's gotta be, set all that aside. Let's stay focused on God's word. Let's stay true to the word. Every verse, every chapter, and make sure that we're hearing what it is that God is truly saying. Doesn't mean that we can't see and know and understand what's going on out in the world around us and how it lays into this, but don't get lost on the message. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ that brings us hope. Hope for our daily lives. Hope for eternity. In that, we also know that that Jesus. Well, how do we know that the Lord that, that how do we know the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ will not suffer suffer in the seven year tribulation? Because the Lord did not ordain us for wrath. So we're talking about pre tribulation rapture here. None of the prophecies concerning tribulation in Revelations four through eighteen mention the church. Guys, that means we're out of here. Now, we talked about this at the beginning of the study. Some people have different views. Don't get lost on those views. Don't leave the church mad. It's okay. We'll talk about it. But let's look at God's word and see what it says. Who or what was the city of Philadelphia? In verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. And then it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, Philadelphia, I'm pretty sure that everybody in this room knows what it means. It means brotherly love. The city was the youngest of the seven cities. It was originally founded by, as a missionary outpost for Hellenism, the culture of ancient Greece. It was positioned to spread Greek culture throughout the Asian provinces. Barclay says Philadelphia had been built with deliberate intention that it would become a missionary city. Beyond Philadelphia lay the wilds of Fergia and barbarous tribes. The intent was the function of Philadelphia would be to spread the Greek language, the Greek way of life, Greek civilization through the regions and beyond. That was their mission. And there are three Greek words for love, and many of you may have done these in different studies. We have eros, which is erotic or sensual love, phileo, brotherly love, and agape is God's love. The city of Philadelphia was founded in 189 BC by a man named Immunes II. When he died, he was succeeded by his younger brother, Attalus II, who named buildings after his brother, minted coins bearing his brother's image, and talked about his brother consistently. Consequently, the people of the town began to call this place Philadelphia, so the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Thus, it's no surprise that Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, actually became the center of evangelism, where evangelism would then go from that city as well, not just the Greek culture. It was a prosperous city. It was a wealthy city. Philadelphia um, commanded one of the greatest highways in the world, a highway that led from Europe to the Middle East, or to to, to Asia, to the eastern side. Philadelphia was a gateway, literally from one continent to the other continent. The city was known as, for its beautiful buildings and also known for earthquakes. Earthquakes that required frequent evacuations of the city. Side note of why I don't live in California. I don't like things shaky. It was proudly known as Little Athens. Barclay said that To walk through its temple-scattered streets was to be reminded of Athens, a center of worship of the Olympian gods. So in this, as I'm putting this study together, I started thinking, you know, what is our city known for? 
What is the city of Lakewood known for? What is Denver, Colorado known for? It's kind of a thought to ponder. How do people perceive us? It's interesting, as we talked a little bit about foster care ministry, we have this foster care roundtable that we're a part of, and there's many churches, and uh, Colorado Kids Belong is behind this, and, and we collaborate, we meet together and talk. Well, there's people outside of our state that are asking about our collaboration. You see, they look at us and they see a group of Christians working together with even some in the government, and they're meeting the needs of foster families and foster kids. They want to know what our secret is. That's something that's seen from outside of our state. Our fall fun fest that we did yesterday. It should be a consistent enough that people would look at this church building as a safe place to bring their kids, a safe place to hang out. And I heard that from several families yesterday. Could it be, though, that our church is also a safe place to build and restore marriages, to support families in such a way that would in turn impact our city? We're not supposed to take what we hear on a Sunday morning and what we study and just hold on to it and go, well, that was nice, it'll make me feel good for a week. It's for us to take those things out of this place and make an impact in our families and in our communities. We can literally change the face of our city and what it's seen as. Even our city would be seen as a safe place to live because of our influence within it. Further in, in verse 7, Jesus describes himself to the church in Philadelphia. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. He who is holy, who is true. Jesus reminds the church in Philadelphia that he was holy and true. These don't describe tendencies of Jesus, but describe his very being, his character. It also shows that Jesus is Yahweh, because he alone is absolute holy in an absolute sense. There are two ancient Greek words that we might translate true. One means true, not false. The other means true, not fake. And the ancient Greek word used here for true in the, is, is the second. It, it is the idea of real or genuine. Jesus is true in all of who he is. He is the real God, the real man. And in that, he is our example. So the first question I would ask you is, do you believe that? Is that at the core of your faith? It should be. But then I would ask you on the heels of that, if that's what you believe, then are you true and are you genuine in your faith? And is it seen? That is, is your life Christ-centered? A Christ-centered life is one that, that is focused upon a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. At the very core of human decision is a motivation, right? When we make a decision, we're motivated to make that decision. If there was no motivation, we would never make a decision. Some people are motivated by the quest for pleasure. Some are motivated by the quest for money or fame. Some center their entire lives on a goal, maybe achieving that certain job and that salary or, or even their families. And these things are not wrong in themselves. However, that which we center our lives on can become our God. What do you focus on? You see, our human heart was designed to worship, and if our heart is not going to worship God, then what is it going to worship? It's going to worship something else. Every Sunday during football season, we have thousands of people 
that go to a sanctuary we used to call Mile High. And they worship. I'm a Bronco fan. Don't get me wrong. And there's nothing wrong with football. But what is at the heart of what you're doing? What is it that you're worshiping? Is that the center? Or is Christ the center? If we are not Christ-centered, we will be centered on something else. Worship. Worship is measured by the amount of time, money, and emotional energy that's expanded. Our gods can be identified by the level of passionate commitment that they evoke in us. And after a while, we begin to resemble them. We talk about them. We think about them. We dream about them. We scheme of ways to spend more time with them. The people who know us, people who know us the best, those people in your very household, they know your deepest passions. They know where your money's spent. They know the things that you spend time on. You know, I've heard some people say to me, like, well, man, you spend, spend a lot of time at church before I was a pastor, but spent a lot of time at church. Well, yeah, that's a focus for me because as for me and my house, <laughs> we're going to serve the Lord. So you have to make that same statement. Well, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. That's not going to be a popular thing. But if you're going to say that and you're going to do that and your actions and your attitudes and your words, if that all conveys that, they're going to see it. They're going to know that you are true, that you are genuine. We walk about them, we think about them, we dream about them, we spend more time with them. People will truly know us by our deepest passions. So I would ask you this morning, what or who is consuming your life? What or who is consuming your life? Is it God or is it something else? If it's not God, are you ready for the exhortation? If it's not God that's consuming your life, because, right, we get a little bored. That's why we have 600 TV channels, right? And you can never decide what you're going to watch. If God is not that center, if, not, if God is not the one that's consuming your life, then you need to remove that thing. Get rid of it. But, Scott, I like to, if God's not the center, remove it. Put God at the center. No person has ever lived a perfect life except Jesus. Even those who deeply desire a Christ-centered life, they're going to stumble, they're going to fall, they're going to sin, they're going to make fleshly decisions. They're going to have moments of weakness. Guys, I'm human. All those things I just read, I'm going to stumble, I'm going to fall, I'm going to make stupid decisions, but I can't live there. See, a Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-filled person cannot endure living in disharmony with God. They will quickly confess that sin and be restored into fellowship with him. Guys, if we're in sin, we've got to remove ourselves. That's that repenting piece, right? It's asking for forgiveness, and it's turning away from that. Restore that fellowship. This process of living in continual harmony with God is called sanctification, It's a lifelong process by which God makes us more like Jesus. When we first center our hearts on him, our lives quickly follow. And don't you know that we struggle the most when we're not living a life fully surrendered to him? Is there an area in your life that you need to surrender and ask for forgiveness for? Like if you're struggling through something right now, like we're all going to struggle through things because 
just because you're a Christian doesn't mean it's easy. Anybody have a good Christian, easy Christian life? Because if it's easy for you, I need to talk to you because I don't know how to do that. It's work. It's hard. We have to surrender and go all in. Sanctification is a translation of the Greek word meaning holiness or separation. In the past, God granted us justification, a once-for-all positional holiness in Christ. Now he guides us into maturity and a practical, progressive holiness. We're working on it. In the future, God will give us glorification. There will be a permanent, ultimate holiness that we have as we spend eternity in heaven. These three phases of sanctification separate the believer from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. Remember, we've talked about before to be justified. To be justified is to look at what's been going on in your life, and you look at it, and it's just as if I'd never sinned because of what Christ did on the cross. You see, being a Christian is a choice. It's a lifestyle. Thus, it would drive your worldview, meaning that your worldview is going to be biblically based. Jesus is the center of that view. He is the real God, the real man, the genuine deal. He is our example. And he says, who had the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Jesus showed that he is the keeper, not just of the keys, but of the doors themselves. This quote from Isaiah 22, Jesus expressed his power and his authority, especially to admit. We all like the admit piece. Receive me, Lord, admit me. But we don't like the other part, to exclude. That's where our society pushes back. Well, why would God exclude me from heaven? Because he didn't accept Christ. It's that simple. He has the power. He is in control. Jesus is the one who opened the doors for missionaries like William Carey in India or Hudson Taylor in China. He opened the doors for the gospel message to be proclaimed in America. Also in Mexico, in Honduras. He opened the doors for the remotest parts of Africa for the gospel to be spread. But he also shuts doors that can't be opened. If there's a man or a woman that continually says no to the Lord, there will come a time when he'll be unable to say yes. At which point he is locked into his eternal decision and his destruction. Have you met any of those people? I've met them. It breaks my heart, but they have chosen. You can read Romans, you can read the whole book of Romans, but in Romans 1, you can see that, that they were turned over to their wicked and depraved minds because they were not going to receive Christ, period, end of story. It was set. This is our reminder that Jesus is in control of all things. It doesn't matter who's the president, doesn't matter who's in Congress or Senate or leadership, even in our own city, doesn't matter who's the governor. God will use the righteous and the unrighteous to exact his will in his creation. That's hard for us at times to think of. As I was putting this together, this is kind of that spot where, where God is just speaking to me to remind us all that God is in control. But that doesn't mean that you get to opt out when it's time to vote. Oh, no, God's in control. He'll figure it out. I'm just going to sit over here. 
So this is my challenge to you guys, kind of a little pause in the message to make sure that you're reading, make sure that you're praying over all the information that you have. God, who is it I'm supposed to vote for? What is it I'm supposed to vote for? Give me wisdom in that and let me do it as you would guide and direct and vote. So every single person in this room that can vote, go vote. (laughs) Take care of business. God is in control, but he also uses you as he exacts his will. All right, that's about as political as I'm going to get, so let's move on. Um, And I'm praying for you that we make wise decisions. Amen? What Jesus knows about the church of Philadelphia, Revelations 3.8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have not, and have, excuse me, have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know your deeds. Jesus has said this to each of the seven churches. This one happens to be good. The church of Philadelphia had served God well in difficult circumstances, and Jesus knew it. The church also had an open door set before them. Often an open door speaks of evangelistic opportunities. Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, as a wide door for effective service was opened for him. Again, he spoke of the same thing in 2 Corinthians 2, 12. Then he was praying for open doors of evangelism in Colossians 4, 3. See, Jesus told them he had opened the door of evangelistic opportunity that they must go through that door in faith. As I said earlier, this city had the mission of spreading Greek culture and language to the region. Now Jesus has opened the door for Christians of Philadelphia to spread the culture of his kingdom through the whole region. We have to remember, God has given us a great deal of freedom right now as Christians, hasn't he? Now, we want to cry persecution when COVID came and there were masks and, no, you can't have more than 50 people and blah, 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 blah. That wasn't persecution. We don't know persecution in our country like that. Because we have freedom to worship. We have freedom to get together, to be in God's word. But how long will that freedom last? So we need to take advantage of the time that we have and be diligent as we can meet together. Amen? Jesus told them to see that they, that they had this open door. Sometimes God sets an open door of evangelistic opportunity right in front of us, but we don't see it. How many times have you had a conversation with somebody, and as soon as they leave, you're like, oh, I should have said, oh, man, they need to know about Jesus, and I, oh, that would have been a perfect, right? We all do that. I do, I've done that. Like, I get busy, and then I miss an opportunity, A man came to Spurgeon once and asked him how he could win others to Jesus. And Spurgeon said, well, what are you? What what do you do for a living? He said, I'm an engine driver on a train. Then Spurgeon said, well, is the man who shovels the coal on your train a Christian? I don't know, said the man. Go back. Find out. Start with him. You see, once we see the open door, then, then we have to walk through it. We keep praying, Lord, would you give us open doors? Would you give us opportunities? God wants us to take every evangelistic opportunity that he gives us. But sometimes we just get a little too busy, don't we? And we miss it. I've told you before, it can be a 30-second conversation at the drive-thru window at Starbucks. It doesn't have to be a two-hour conversation. It can be simple. 
So I'm asking you this morning, are you looking for opportunities? Are you praying for those opportunities? I have to pray continually, Lord, would you break my heart for those who are lost, right? Because we can come, become callous because we have some bad interactions with those who aren't saved, right? We can become callous. Okay, Lord, I need you to, to soften my heart. I need you to break my heart for them. Help me look for those opportunities. Yesterday at Fall Fun Fest, we, presented, we were presented with many opportunities. And, and like I said, we had three salvations and another lady who's just right there on the verge. Many were prayed for. Hope was shared. People were encouraged. I heard from several parents, thank you for being in a place that's, that's in the daylight and that's safe. It's a powerful tool. But I guarantee that each one of us has opportunities every day that we miss. Anyone? Is it just me? Right? We miss opportunities. Unless you're hiding from that purpose, but that's a different story, different message. There might be another sense to this open door. It seems that Christians in Philadelphia were excluded from the synagogue, as we read in verse 9. The open door may also speak of their opportunity to enter God's kingdom in contrast with exclusion from the synagogue. No one can shut that door. The emphasis is on unhindered openness. There is nothing that can keep them from their access to this door. Jesus is the one who opens the door no one shuts and shuts the doors that no one can open. He had the authority to keep the door open for the Christians in Philadelphia. And you and I have said many times, probably even if, as you've watched the news maybe last week, come Lord Jesus, come, right? Because we want, just let's get out of here. Let's get out of here, let's be done. But not until every soul has been won that you want. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by His Holy Spirit. How many of your family members need Jesus? How many of them have you shared with? Are you praying for them? Are you constantly asking God, Lord, if it's not me, would you send somebody else, right? How many, I have family members that won't listen to me. God, will you send somebody else? <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm having a conversation with them like, oh, well, it's too bad I didn't tell you that 10 years ago, right? It's, it's God's leading it's the Holy Spirit working. So Lord, may we work diligently until the rapture of your church. God opens doors for ministry and for ministers today. Havner puts it this way. I would like to bear witness that I have proved this Philadelphian promise to the open door through the years of ministry and it has never failed. Promotion does not come from the south, the east, or the west, but from God. And if we commit our way to him and trust him, he will bring it to pass. God's man is not dependent on religious talent scouts nor his ministry in the hand of ecclesiastical officials. His headquarters is in heaven. His itinerary is made up by the Lord of the open door. 
God is in control. He opens the doors. Jesus opened the door. He gets the glory for it. H. Morris said, neither wealth or influence or promotional schemes or the eloquence of, the, of its pulpit nor the harmonies of the musician can give it an effective ministry. The Lord alone has opened the door. The Lord alone gives the increase. God is in control. God gives the increase. We've talked often with different pastors of why do certain churches just grow and explode? You know, I knew... Uh, the founding pastor of Red Rocks Church. I met him when he first came. I was a youth pastor. I met him when he first came to Colorado. One guy had his wife and I think one kid and a baby on the way. And then look what happened to that church. And they're like four campuses. It's this mega thing. Why that? Why do other churches, why did other churches during COVID shut down? We don't know. God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one who guides and directs. I've told you before, I, I stopped. They still do a security count in the building every Sunday. Um, I stopped asking for the numbers when God thumped me on the forehead. And uh, it doesn't matter. Who does God have here today? That is who God has brought in. He's the one that brings the increase, right? We don't have to worry about anything other than just show up. Do your part. Be obedient to what God has given you to do. So question for you is you're trying to share your faith. Do you think you're in control of that whole conversation? Do you think that you're the one that has to seal the deal? Well, I'm going to evangelize them right into heaven. I'm a good deal for you. I sell you a good deal. We're not there to sell anything. We're there to show the love of Christ. We're there to give a little bit of hope. We're there to, to encourage them. Remember, there's a, there's a scale, a, a negative 10 to a positive 10, right? We've talked about this before. Zero is the point of salvation. Negative 10 is as far away from God as they can get. You might be the person that takes it from negative 10 to negative 9. Praise God for that. You might be the next one that, in line that somebody else already moved them, and now you're getting them to negative 4. We all work together as the body of Christ, and we get them to zero to that point of salvation, and then we get to pour into them and disciple them as they become a new believer, and we get them to that positive 1, 2, 3, 4. They grow and mature in their faith. We're all a part of that. You don't have to steal, seal anything. It's the Holy Spirit using you. It's the Holy Spirit working through you and through us as the body of Christ. Not just the believers in this church, but believers from, from Pastor John's church down on Garrison and Pastor Mike's church over on the other side of, of Wadsworth. And it's Pastor Christian's church over down by 285. It's, it's all of us as believers working together to glorify God and expand his kingdom. The Holy Spirit does the work. You and I are just a vessel. So relax and let the Holy Spirit use you and do the work in that person's life. You just are simply a conversation starter. Help them start that conversation. He says, because you have little power. The term little power or strength does not imply weakness, but real power. They were weak enough to be strong in the Lord. You know, there's times where we can be too strong. We can be too big, too sure of ourselves for God to really use us, right? I'm confident in evangelism. I've read this book and I can go, I can sell anybody. I mean, save anybody. No, it's not about us. We need to be sure of Christ. The church of Philadelphia had the poverty of spirit to know that they really needed God's strength. Less of me, more of Jesus. 
I can't do this under my own power. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's all about him working in and through us. It's not about our strength, great strength or ability. or It's all about dependability. And you guys remember the story of Samson, right? Big, strong dude. He had the, a great ability. He had great strength, but he had poor dependability. If you use the little strength you have faithfully, it means so, so much more than being flashy like some muscle man or muscle woman. The Apostle Paul lived this concept. You can read about it later in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. But at the end of verse 10 in the message paraphrase, it says, I just let Christ take over. So the weaker I get, the stronger I become because I'm relying on him, not on myself. I look at the book of James, you can do the same thing. You look at that aspect I just quoted. If you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. Well, that, that state of humility, that doesn't seem very strong, does it? If I'm going to humble myself before the Lord, I, mean, I came down to the altar this morning and I just knelt down and prayed for a little bit. And man, we all need to just humble ourselves before the Lord. God, this is not about me. What I'm doing today is about you. May you be glorified. That should be each one of us. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will lift you up. You don't have to do it on your own. Last part of verse eight, and have kept my word and not denied my name. The church in Philadelphia was faithful to Jesus and his word. The idea behind not having not denied my name is not only that they expressed their allegiance to Jesus, but they lived in such a way that was faithful to the name and character of Jesus. What do people see when they look at you? Do they see Jesus? Or do they see the world? I know for a fact that we have some so-called churches in our city. They claim faithfulness to the Lord and that they are faithful to the word of God, yet they deny the name of Jesus and they bring a representation of Jesus that is not biblical. They deny or simply skip over parts of the Bible that don't fit their personal agenda or what society says they should do. They want to fit it to their narrative. And I will tell you now, as a church, as Foothills Calvary, we will hold fast to God's word, to the whole counsel of God's word. And that is a stand that you should make as well, that you will hold fast to the whole counsel of God's word, that you and your household will serve the Lord. So the prayer and the statement is that may we as a church be a bold body of believers that has the same features of the church in Philadelphia, as we're approached with opportunities for evangelism that, that he sets before us, that we are obedient to that, that we rely on God because we have nothing. We can't do it on our own. We need him to engage. And then as we show our faithfulness to Jesus in keeping his word and not denying his name, may we glorify him and may our faith be seen within our families and within our community and truly make a change. At a glance, these are somewhat unspectacular things, but these things should be normal or commonplace in Bible-believing churches, simply teaching the whole counsel of God's word, simply. Jesus was completely pleased with the church in Philadelphia. He had nothing negative to say. Barnhouse says the church of Philadelphia was commended for keeping the word of the Lord and not denying his name. Success in Christian work is not to be measured by any other standard of achievement. 
It is not a rise in ecclesiastical position, nor a number of new buildings which have been built through a man's ministry. It's not the crowds that flock to and listen to a human voice. All these things are frequently used as yardsticks of success, but they are earthly and they're not heavenly measures. So I would ask you this morning then, how do you measure success in your life? Is it your house? Is it a relationship? Is it your marriage? Is it money? Is it education? No, I've got eight degrees on my wall. You call me whatever the alphabet behind your name. What is it that you use to measure your success? What about it as, as a church? Is it, is it the building? Is it, oh, we own our own building or we get to move to a bigger building or is it, I said head count, is it butts in the seats? Are we just looking for seat warmers? What is our motivation? What is our success? Is it outreach? Is it making a certain number of disciples? You see, our heart intent must be genuine to God's word and to the leading of the Holy Spirit. All those other things are surface. What is going on in the heart of a person? In ministry, it's hard to gauge success because it truly is a heart issue an issue that men and women take up with God himself. We talked about that before. It's, it's not like Star Trek where you can see the particles beam as they beam them up and out and whatever. When a person accepts Christ, it happens internally and only God knows. In all the years of ministry that Pam and I have done, we may not know what God did through any of it, really, until we're in heaven. Right? Every once in a while I get a young adult, or a, well, actually they're adults now, that were youth that are now married and having kids and they're coming and talking to us and like, hey, thank you for sharing the Lord with us. Thank you for loving me because, man, I was a knucklehead. <laughs> I was a teenager all the way. But thank you for pouring into my life. And it was funny because last week somebody sent me a, uh, a song and it was Ray Bolt's, thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was saved. You guys are going to hear that when you get to heaven, right? You're going to, I doubt it'll be Ray Bolt, but you're going to hear somebody come up to you and say, thank you for giving me hope. Because of that conversation we had, it took two, three years, but man, I gave my life to the Lord because of that conversation. See, you're going to hear the same thing one day when you get to heaven. I am a life that was saved because you were bold enough to share hope with me. We all want to hear that, don't we? I'd like to see my family circle up up there, all my extended, my cousins, all my aunts and uncles. I want to see them up there the same way. Next, then, what is the blessing that Jesus will do for the Christians of Philadelphia, 9 and 10, 9 and 10 of Revelation 3? Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Here again, we have that reference to the synagogue of Satan. The Christians in Philadelphia were persecuted by the Jewish people the synagogue. However, these persecuting Jews were Jews in name only. 
In fact, they had no spiritual connection to Abraham or to the people of faith. And Jesus didn't speak against all Jewish people. He simply spoke to this specific group of Jewish people in Philadelphia who persecuted the Christians during that time. And there's three categories of people that are in the Bible. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, and there's the church. Well, what makes up the church? Former Jews and former Gentiles, right? They become the church as they surrender their lives. It's important for us to understand and to realize that, that the reason for the tribulation is the fact that God is not through with the Jews in Israel. God's not done with them. In this, we have to be aware of those who teach replacement theology. And, and I could spend an hour and a half just on this, but we're not going to go that deep. Replacement theology or suppressionism essentially teaches that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. There are those who believe in and follow replacement theology that believe that the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. That God does not have a specific future plan for the nation of Israel. This is not biblically sound doctrine. It's not in the Bible. It's man taking God's word out of context. The rapture is when Jesus comes to get us, the, the church, the, the Christians. The second coming is when Jesus comes back to rescue Israel. May God help us to never lose our understanding of Israel's importance, that it has not faded. And guys, there's some very big influential ministries out there that are teaching that and espousing that. So be careful. Pay attention to God's word. Be a Berean. Study it. He says, I will make them come down, bow down at your feet. Jesus promised that he would vindicate his people and make sure that their persecutors recognized that they were wrong and that Jesus and his followers were right. These in the synagogue of Satan had a holy arrogance about them, so much so that they were persecuting the Christians. And God promised that church of Philadelphia that they would indeed be vindicated before the persecutors. As a reminder in 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 25, it speaks of unbelievers falling down in the midst of Christians to worship God. They would not be worshiping the Christians, but God would be worshiped in the very presence of these Christians. Guys, you have to remember, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The difference is, are you going to do it now when you have the opportunity and the freedom to, and then get to spend eternity in heaven, or are you going to do it when it's too late and you spend eternity in hell? He says that he'll make them know that I have loved you. As long as those, were once, as those who once were enemies worshipped alongside them, they were destroyed as enemies. Now they knew that Jesus had loved these people they once persecuted. The best way to destroy an enemy of the gospel is to begin to pray that God would change them into a friend. How easy is it to pray for your enemies? Everybody does it, right? No, probably not. There are those who are persecuted and often desire greatly that justice is served against those who persecute them. And you can read Revelation 6.10 later. Tertullian says, What sight shall we wake my wonder? When the, what laughter, my joy and exultation? As I see all those kings, those great kings, groaning in the depths of darkness. And magistrates who persecuted in the name of Jesus, liquefying in fiercer flames than they kindled in their rage against Christians. Whew. That's what the sons of thunder wanted, remember? Well, Jesus, they're not accepting us. Shall we call down fire and smoke that city? 
I'm sure you've never thought of that about one of your enemies, right? You've never thought about that, have you? No, it's just me. Okay. It's good that we don't have a red smoke button on the car while we're driving. At least that I don't have one. Okay, I'll speak for myself. There'd be a bunch of black spots on Colfax and 6th Avenue all the way to Presbyterian St. Luke's. Because that's our nature, isn't it? So when you have that struggle with your enemy, pray for them. God, would you minister to them? Would you draw them to you? Verse 10, I also keep you from the hour of testing, which the hour is about to come upon the whole world. Jesus also promised them protection from the hour of trial. Most Bible scholars see this hour of trial as a prophetic reference to the messianic woes of the great tribulation that precedes Jesus' earthly kingdom. Jesus promised to keep these Christians from that hour of trial. The test is directed against those who dwell on earth. These are unbelievers, not believers. This is not a test for Christians. The the phrase is used nine times in the book of Revelation. It speaks of those who are not saved in Christ. Revelation 17.8 makes the term synonymous with lost. Those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life and the foundation of the world. Christians are different. Though we walk on this earth, our dwelling place is not here, is it? It's in heaven. We're just passing through. Our destination is heaven for eternity. We've been seated in heavenly places in Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. We do not dwell on the earth. Our life is hidden in Jesus, Colossians 3.3. That's our hope. That's where we're headed. To keep you from the hour of testing. Does this imply an escape from the great tribulation or does it promise protection in the tribulation? Each side believes that this passage easily supports their position. Those who believe the church will be here on earth during this time in great tribulation focus on Jesus' command to persevere. It says the context demands seeing this as protection that enables the faithful to persevere in the great tribulation. Now, I don't want to be here. (laughs) And so I'm not just reading into scripture that we're going to have a pre-tribulation rapture. That's what I see laid out before us. There are those that believe they'll be here through the tribulation. I even know some people who think that they get to choose their armor for the battle of Armageddon. We need to stay true to God's word. Don't lose track as we talk through some of these things. Perseverance in the past tense here, though, showing that it's something that Christians had already done before the hour of trial, which has not yet come upon the world. The promise of a reward for past perseverance, not the equipping for perse- to persevere in the future. Wolverd says it this way, as far as the Philadelphian church was concerned, the rapture of the church was presented to them as an imminent hope. So then that begs a question for us. Do you have hope in the rapture of the church? Now in that, it's not to become complacent. We've talked about that. I feel like sometimes if we talk about pre-tribulation rapture, we get a little complacent. Oh, well, I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to go through anything. I can just take it easy. No, this is where we engage. This is where we evangelize because we know that the time is short. Right? We don't just sit back in our closet and wait or go sit on your roof on a chair waiting for the rapture so you, I don't know, you get there quicker. Guys, we have to engage in our faith. This should give us hope. 
I have hope because of this. Then there's instructions from Philadelphia to Jesus in verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so no one will take your crown. First, the church of Philadelphia must remember that Jesus is coming quickly. They must prepare for his coming. Remember, Wolverine said in regards to this, the expression quickly is to be understood as something which is sudden and unexpected, not necessarily immediate. It means it's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye. Hold fast then to what you have. The church of Philadelphia must not uh, depart from its solid foundation described in Revelations 3.8. They had a great door, given, open door given to them, great evangelistic opportunities. Everything they did was in the strength that God provided. And lastly, they were faithful to Jesus. These things can and must continue among the church in Philadelphia, but it only happen as they hold fast to what they have. So what I would ask you this morning then is the same thing. Are you holding fast or steady with what God has given you? God has given you a great deal at your fingertips. Are you holding on to it? Are you working on your salvation? Are you growing in your faith? Are you looking for opportunities to share your faith with passion and great expectation? You see, the church, if they fail to hold fast, their crown might be given to another. The idea is that it's not stolen by another, but that God literally takes it and gives that crown to somebody else. It's not a crown of royalty given because of royal birth. It was a crown of victory. So Jesus encouraged the saints to finish their course with victory, to play through the second half just as strongly as they played in the first half. Because that's how we have to endure as a Christian. Endurance. Press on, press in, run the race well. Havner said, never forget that the man most likely to steal your crown is yourself. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You are in no great da- greater danger from anyone or anything than from yourself. How many know we cause our own problems? <laughs> we cause our own problems. There's a promise of reward in verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from there anymore. I will write on him the name of my God or the name of my city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God and my new name. You see, overcomers were told that they would be as a pillar in the temple of my God. Pillars were a picture of strength and stability. They were dignified and they were beautiful I mentioned earlier the ancient city of Philadelphia suffered from frequent earthquakes. When a building collapsed in an earthquake, often all that remained standing were the huge pillars. Jesus offers us the same strength to remain standing in him when everything around us crumbles. The pillar holds up the building. The only thing supporting the pillar is the foundation. The true pillars of the church support the church. They look to Jesus as their support and foundation. So I would ask you, is your foundation built correctly? Is it built on Jesus? And in that, if you understand that, then you would understand that you are part of the supporting structure of the church as a whole. You are a pillar within the body of Christ. You as a Christian in this body are strong and valuable. You are part of our structure as a church. The overcomer would have a place of preeminence and stability with God in contrast to uncertain place of the world. In Christ, we find that stability. 
The overcomer also receives many names of God. The new Jerusalem, which we'll talk about later, and the new name of Jesus. The the name and marks, these are marks of identification because they show who we belong to. Marks of intimacy because he knows who you are, that you are privileged to know him in ways that others do not. It works together well with the image of a pillar in the ancient world, having a special inscribed pillar. The ancient temples sometimes would honor the faithful in the city or a distinguished priest by putting their name on that pillar of that temple or of that building. Then verse 13 is is a repeat. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We all want to hear the praise and encouragement Jesus gave to the church of Philadelphia. Every pastor wants to call his church the church of Philadelphia. Why wouldn't we? If we will be like this church, then we must stay on the foundation, which is Jesus. We must stay on the foundation of Jesus' name and of his word. We must depend on their source for our strength. That source is Jesus. The source of strength is not ourselves. We can't do any of this by ourselves. We'll never make it. So he, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Guys, make sure you're paying attention to what God is saying as we read this book. Grab it, apply it, give it out, give it out, give it away, give it away. Don't just hold on to it, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the freedom we have to be here, to meet in this space, that we get to exercise our freedom in Christ daily, but then here we get to exercise that same freedom by worshiping together, by being in your word, and by praying with and for each other and having fellowship. Lord, we thank you for your word and that it was, from the day it was written, that it was powerful and that today it has the same power, that you desire to speak to us, that you desire us to know you, that you desire us to stay focused on you. Lord, let us not get distracted as we go through this book, but to stay focused on those words. So thank you that you want to communicate to us. Thank you for relaying this message the message from the church in Philadelphia to us. How would you help us to mirror the image they had as they honored you? Would you help us to be genuine, Christ-centered people who are building on the right foundation? Let us see and understand that we're each pillars in this structure, that we bring strength as we work together. God, I would pray this morning as well, if there's anything that's not of you in our lives, that you would show us what it is and help us to to take care of it, to make things right before you. And Lord, I would ask as we leave this place this today and, and this week that you would give us opportunities to share our faith and to do so with passion and great expectation. Help us, Lord, not only to hold fast, but help us to share hope. Use us, Lord. In Jesus' name. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. You can do that this morning if you don't have a relationship with God, if, if you haven't made that decision, whether you're in this room or you're listening online. It's simply you surrendering your life to God. It's asking God for forgiveness and confessing that he is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, repenting from the compromise, from the sin, from the corruption that's been in your life, 
turning from it, asking for forgiveness. It's then that you can begin to lay the foundation on Jesus. It's then that you begin from that point on growing as a pillar within the church, engaged in the church. So this morning we're going to pause. I'm just going to everybody bow your heads, close your, close your eyes, and we're going to have a simple conversation with God. Like I said before, this is not really about my words. This is about your heart and a conversation between you and God. You can use my words or you can use your own. But if that's you, pray something like this. Dear God, please help me. I can't live like this any longer. I confess that Jesus is Lord and I believe that you raised him from the dead. Because of that, I can repent. I can turn from my sins. Forgive me. Help me to head in a new direction. Help me to grow in strength with my eyes fixed on you. Help me to serve you and honor you in all that I do. In Jesus' name. This has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.